Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. There is a moment that comes to so many of us in the late afternoon on Christmas Day, writes my guest Madeline Shanahan, when we look at the post-meal dining table festooned with scrunched paper crowns, splattered with cranberry sauce and gravy, and graced with a half-eaten, hacked-up plum pudding, and we are torn between cracking on with the inevitable tidy-up and retreating to the sofa for a double Bailey's and a snooze. In this moment, we vow that we will never eat again, and our resolve lasts for an hour or so until a box of Cadbury Roses chocolates is passed around and we somehow find room. If excitement and anticipation are the feelings almost universally shared by children at 5 a.m. on Christmas morning, being stuffed and exhausted are the ones that unite their parents come 5 p.m. Madeline Shanahan has investigated the history of Christmas dinner as it has developed in the English-speaking world and has shared her findings in her book, Christmas Food and Feasting. She has a PhD in archeology span from University College Dublin and is manager of public history and research for GML Heritage in Sydney, Australia. Madeline Shanahan, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having me. So um, this podcast is dropping on the 23rd or Christmas Eve uh, or 24th Christmas Eve. So um, what you just I just read of yours is a prophecy of what's about to happen to most of us in 24 hours. Um, so you're an archaeologist by training. How did you come to write about Christmas feasting? So um, I did my PhD at University College Dublin, um, where I started looking at assemblages um, associated with food and dining and um, kitchens in the early modern period in, in Ireland. Hmm. And I was looking for sort of a category of material culture that told the story about how much change there was to food in in Ireland in this period. It was a time of unprecedented change when the Irish diet was completely transformed. And I mean, for, process, how was it, just to ask, how, how was it being hmm. how was it being transformed? Well, it was a time when Ireland, as you might know, was increasingly um, brought into the. Um, uh, um, during the plantation period, it was brought under sort of English rule increasingly. So you have this mm-hmm. huge influx of people coming from Scotland and, and England and bringing their food culture with them. Um, you also have then the sort of story of globalisation and the dis- exploration in the Americas and the influx of ultimately potatoes and the, all these mm-hmm. new crops that um, transformed European food. Um, and, so and so as, this, I under, as I understand it, I, the Irish prior to the potato were a very dairy-rich diet and uh, pig for, as, a, as a luxury. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they, they, yeah, they did um, things with, but, dairy- with butter, amazing things with butter. Yeah, and these things called white meats, which were sort of like milk in various states of um, uh, fermentation and different different sort of ways of... <laughs> processing milk that was these various sort of soft cheeses. They had an extraordinary cheese culture and um, very mm. rich dairy culture, but also beef and mm-hmm. um, and oats. So it was a very different diet, very different system of eating. Um, in, you know, Gaelic culture, there was a really important emphasis put on hospitality and 
a lot of, was written about that in, in Colonial Island on the frontier. Um, so you sort of have these two food cultures kind of um, brought into conflict with one another as Ireland was colonised and mm-hmm. um, food was transformed as just one one part of that. Um, but at the same time, you have the story of the development of capitalism and globalisation bringing in, you know, the modification of foods and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the change in the land. So one of the things I was interested in that, though, was in all these um, newcomers to Ireland during the plantation, what elements of their food was really important to them? How did they transform food? And one of the things they brought with them was recipe books, and there was no recipe writing in Ireland prior to the mid-17th century. Um, <laughs> and within the space of about 20 years, um, around 1650s on, you it becomes a prolific genre. And so my argument, I guess, was that um, elite women coming over from England and Scotland and marrying into families in Ireland brought their recipe books with them as a way of spreading and disseminating this new new food mm-hmm. culture. Um, mm-hmm. So that's sort of how an archaeologist ended up finding their way into history, I suppose. It was a, a way yeah. of trying to understand how texts and objects and people related to each other in the early modern world and in the process, I just really fell in love with recipe books, and archival research. Um, well, I, and you can see that in this yeah. book. I mean, you, I, I, I hesitate to ask you how many cookbooks you own. Oh, but yeah. I, 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 let me ask, let me ask you how many cookbooks. Well, I'm sitting next to like piles of recipe books everywhere in our new house. <laughs> anywhere to go. Um, but my passion is really handwritten recipe books. That every time I give a really? talk on recipe books, women come along. Often, come along with books that were handed to them through generations. And one of the things you see when you study recipe books in the early modern period is that um, they were often handed down for sometimes. Um, 200 years in families in Ireland with each generation adding a layer. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really fascinating um, part that of the genre. Fascinating. Yeah. That is fascinating. That is fascinating. Do you, do you own handwritten recipe books? Have you, have you managed to acquire some over the, over the? I haven't acquired any um, full manuscripts. I should, I, I would love to do that. There's some fantastic rare book readers in the States actually that I'm always looking at their websites, but I do have some really interesting ones, not, um, they're not originally handwritten. What you often find in, so particularly in early Australian uh, recipe books, is you by that stage we've got printed recipe books in Australia, but women will be given them and then annotate them. So mm-hmm. they'll be, I've got some really beautiful examples from the 19th century where we have sort of little notes written in the margin and um, hmm. inserts well, and, you know, yeah. Well, that emphasises then a lot of the things that we'll be discussing. I mean, Christmas feasting is... Um, mm-hmm we've got this cultural continuum that goes for, gosh, uh, at least 1,500, 1,700 years. Uh, and mm. yet it's a continuum, but with alterations, it gives you a, a baseline, but then you can see how things change over time. It's about hospitality. Um, it's about the ways in which cultures assimilate uh, different cultures into them um, and sort of jujitsu them into being part of themselves or maybe are themselves transformed, maybe they themselves jujitsued. Um, mm. And it's about recipe books. All these things are part mm. of this, uh, of your story of Christmas. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, yeah, go, go on. No, no, no. You go. Sorry. Okay. So um, Sorry. beginning with the, the first people might 
be surprised to realize, but I think that you, you right, and I, I think it's generally acknowledged that the first celebration of the noted celebration in the history of Christmas is not until three until three forty six. Um, certainly, the early fourth century. Um, yes, that's right. And you very uh, tactfully trying to steer clear of how that happened and all the rest of that stuff. And, and Lord knows there are lots of arguments about it. But let's just assume that it's um, essentially people had the idea, in, as I understand it, in, the ancient, in ancient history, that uh, great men were often conceived on the same day that they were died. They died. Um, if Jesus died sometime in March, then he was uh, born in De then he was conceived in March, and therefore born in December, something like that. That's yeah, look in the process. Story. Yeah, there there seem to be sort of multiple competing stories, and I sort of got stuck into a little bit of that literature for a while, and in the end, I felt um, yeah, not I'm not a theological historian or yeah. a theologian in any sense. And to me, wading through these debates of why 25th of December sort of won yeah, out what's in up? the end, you could take it in various different directions, but ultimately it was a time that meant something to people. And, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's yeah. not really important to your story. Um, no, no. Uh, no, it's not. So, but what's important to your story is it's, and it, there's something, um, what's important to your study, and we'll keep on doing this, is that... Um, the fact that that Christmas was celebrated at the time of Saturnalia means that Christmas, be, from it from the beginning, and perhaps the theologians who set that date at that time realized this. It has a certain theological and cultural implication. As it, let's say, it, it, for our purposes, it has a cultural implication, right? Um, yes, what is that? exactly. Yeah. The well, cultural so implication, this throughout, um, so I think there's a lot of focus put on Saturnalia quite rightly when we talk about the history of Christmas, but I think what I've tried to get across is that more broadly than that, throughout Europe, this time of year was one that mattered and that was yes. marked with festivals. And mm -hmm. these festivals were about the closing in of winter and darkness and about hope for the new year and... Um, they contained a series of rituals that really were designed to try and ensure that light and life would return. Mm -hmm. And that's inherent in the Christian message, as I understand it, as much as it is in this more pagan understanding of, of darkness and, and light. And so within that, you get this feast that mm -hmm. becomes important and is, has been important for millennia. Yeah, and there's also an emphasis on, as you say, on generosity, social leveling, and peace between all mankind. That you can yes. find that in all these festivals. The social leveling thing is very interesting. There's also the emphasis on excess, which is common to all these things. That's part of the social leveling. One of the things that surprised me when I was doing the research actually was this emphasis on peace and this yeah. idea of peace and social leveling and people coming together and that. I'd understood elements of Saturnalia. I don't think I understood quite how much this idea of um, masters waiting upon servants and this one time of the year where everyone comes together and where there's this nostalgic, even even in Saturnalia, there's this nostalgic idea of this time when there was this golden age of peace between all mankind. And that, yeah, that sort it's... of is evoked even at that early stage and that has really stayed with whatever festival is celebrated at winter for millennia, mm -hmm. really. 
No, it really is. And and you can see the, uh, the sort of the, the Southern phrase would be bottom rail on top. Um, emphasis of the of the feast in in which the mm. master waits on servants um mm. any christian theologian in 200 300 says aha there we go mm. that's mm. that's good mm. um that how how do you have like a uh to have a the creator entering creation to have uh the power becoming uh powerless these are all these are all the theological emphases when they also become part of the emphases of the festival it's really yes. very, it's a very, yeah. very interesting. So um, you uh, have many chapters, but as I would um, divide them, they come down to three topics, meat, sugar, and liquor. Uh, yeah, alcohol. I think that's fair enough. Yeah, yeah, I think they're the three, the three things you, of uh, uh, the three elements of Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, well, I qu I'm quoting you. you. You point this out later on. So I, I, these are the sections. So let's let's hit. We can't. The the, the it, there's a dazzling variety uh, in this book, and we and that's as you keep saying this. You're not dealing with continental Christmases. This is the English speaking Christmas uh, of of Britain, Britain, Ireland, um, Australia, New Zealand, and sometimes the United States, um, which. Uh, got pulled into this orbit too, for obvious reasons. Um, but do you, you want to caveat that at all? Or, or Yeah. So one of the things when I started is I um, originally sort of was thinking of delving more broadly into Christmas globally. And I think the thing that writing this book taught me is that many volumes could be written on the many histories, <laughs> many Christmases everywhere around the world. And um, I eventually sort of came to, realize that to tell any of those stories in in depth you need to look at them in quite a lot of detail and, and this book is part of this series of books called the meal series edited by ken abala and one of the things it tries to do is atomize meals and and really look at their origins so in order to do that i wanted to get kind of up close and personal <laughs> to some of the main <laughs> stories and and i for me i think being an australian um growing up in um, a country that is sweltering in high summer in Christmas and yet we still went through this ritual each year of eating this roast of, pol of well, we ate chicken, but turkey or roast ham and then this boiled plum pudding. Um, for me, there was something that I needed to really understand what that was about and where that mm -hmm. came from and the meaning of that. So there's an element where this was a personal um, story that I wanted to kind of delve into and the more I got into it, I realised how the story of empire and this the geopolitics of multiple periods and so that's really what this this is about and it and the story of of empire goes way back i was stunned as as someone who thinks that they're a southern historian to see the mm. way in which even in the 18th century um the South, the Gentleman's Magazine was saying why can't we celebrate Christmas the way they do in the southern colonies of America uh, yeah, that was yeah, that was amazing yeah. Um, yeah, this dialogue that they start getting into between these kind of competing ideas of hospitality and golden age and perceived sort of, uh, it's it's fascinating, that very early discourse. Yeah, and we'll get to this. I think we'll we'll wrap up yeah. with this. But the, the 
um, but the, the the way that these themes, uh, you already described the way that nostalgia, Saturnalia is about a nostalgia for the golden age in which Kronos, Saturn, was the king mm. of the gods before Zeus emasculated him and, 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 and threw him down. Um, so that nostalgia has always been part of this. It's really fascinating the way that nostalgia remains a cultural sort of guardrail or, or a theme of this of this holiday. Um, but let's talk about meat. Um, yes. Why why is meat so important at Christmas? Because um, it always has been. But why? Well, I suppose it's a, it's easily lost on people now in a you know industrialized farming age. Sure that meat is something that is to be had readily and that is abundant. And um, now we're sort of facing into this anxiety about sort of sustainability and how much we can continue to eat the vast quantities of meat that we've become accustomed to. But in earlier times from from the distant pre-Christian past, right through the medieval and into the, you know, early modern period um, and beyond, to be honest, Meat was something that was special and it was, it marked feasts. Um, I think it's particularly important. So it wasn't something that was readily had. And so it meant luxury and enjoyment and excess and everything that made a good <laughs> celebration. Yeah. I mean, because all meat has to be fresh. And yeah, and then it, you all and you and you have to have the resources to to grow to grow it and that and even ch chickens eat a lot. Yeah, but I think even going back into the sort of particular time of year, this gets back to the idea of sort of winter as this time of feasting. So we discussed this idea of the sort of the close of light and the I wish for sort of return in the new year but actually winter is also a time and because we've sort of lost connection to our agricultural calendars and we live in cities in urbanized mm -hmm. areas that winter is actually a time of abundance and most people probably don't necessarily understand <laughs> that that you've had the end of autumn and you've the beasts are at their fattest and you've slaughtered them and there's very little work to be done so you are at this time of the year naturally when there is an excess of fresh meat that's right, um, and hog, slaughter, hog, hog slaughtering happens in the in the south when it first gets cold enough for you to be able to do it, uh, and the and the meat won't immediately go off. So it has to be below forty five Fahrenheit, say. Um, the the world has to be a natural refrigerator in order to have hog slaughtering. Um, yes, and then yeah. and then you have a certain amount of time to have the fresh pig meat, and a certain amount of time to cure everything else. Yes, and that yeah. turns out to be Christmas. Yeah, exactly. So we've got this abundance of meat, little work left to be done after the autumn harvest, and this idea that feasting um, and being together is of, of utmost importance at this time. And there's actually potentially some sort of ritualised elements we see in the types of meat that are eaten, um, you know, mm -hmm. and these, these work hand in hand with the fact that they're in season. But um, pork, for example, that you raised is it's possible that um, certain pagan deities like uh, the Norse god Freyr had this association with boars and that um, there's an argument that the 26th of December, which for us is Boxing Day or St Stephen's Day in, in Ireland, that Freyr's feast sort of merged into St Stephen's Day and mm. that the consumption of pork around that. Um, was preserved as this fertility right associated with Freya. There's also the idea that feasting on 
migratory fowl that left Europe um, was sort of part of this ritualized way of trying to make sure that they'll return in the new mm-hmm. year. So obviously this is all lost in the distant past and we sort of it's down to folklorists to sort of mm-hmm. help us piece this together. But there certainly seems to be this persistent themes built around feasting on these particular species in abundance. Mm-hmm. That, that so let's, let's, let's talk about birds. Um, let's talk about the, mm-hmm. the really important, import, I mean, a momentously important cultural transition between the goose and the turkey in the Christmas mm-hmm. feast. So, um, once upon a time, I mean, even in America, people ate geese uh, for Christmas. I, I don't know anyone. I wonder if anyone in America has eaten a goose for decades, but I, I, I imagine it's happened somewhere. But it's not something you see in the market anymore. But um, wh- can, you, can you describe that? I mean, why the goose and why was that important? And uh, how did the turkey begin to rule the certainly the English uh, Christmas? Well, again, with geese, like a migratory species that um, left originally and so it was, you know, important at this time of year. And there are these series of feasts. The important thing to know about Christmas, I think, in terms of the history, and I'll try and sort of summarise this as quickly as I can, but we're now left with this period where we, we have this crazy December leading up to this one day and then this sort of strange week in between Christmas and New Year's Day where you don't really know what day of the week it is or um, <laughs> whether you're coming or going. But, and yeah, then right. New Year's happens and January is sort of a recovery zone. But traditionally you had this series of feasts um, going from the end of October, so sort of Halloween, right mm-hmm. through to um, March actually. And you had this series of feasts and fasts in between. But yeah. Even earlier, Michaelmas is what September twenty eighth, um, and that that was a yeah, that was a goose e- goose eating f- uh, festival as well. Yeah, it's true. So, so we've got this series of feasts from autumn through the spring, yeah, um, yeah, from the pagan world, and then they become a you know Christianized. So we get Michaelmas and Martinmas and also stay and you know going through the twelve days of Christmas then, and over time they get sort of paired back and whittled down from the. Mm-hmm. post-medieval mm-hmm. world on so that we're now left with really this build up and then this one big day mm-hmm. um but though that feasting on geese as you you know brought up with michaelmas and then we have martinmas was really significant throughout autumn and obviously you know in the states you've got elements of that coming through in thanksgiving in a way that we don't have in um australia and and the uk yeah. Um, so I think that, that, that story of feasting on poultry is really um, has been a persistent theme. And then when Turkey um, crosses the Atlantic, it's it sort of became like the perfect species really for farming and for feasting. They're huge, docile. Um, yeah. And um, there's the element of the exotic at first with them in, in Britain as well. I saw that the uh, Catherine de Medici had them and they were called Indian chickens, which is, that's appropriate enough. That makes more sense than tur- uh, uh, Turkey uh, to call them an Indian well, chicken. I think, I think this idea that it's from the East and the exotic, yeah, and absolutely. they're not quite sure of their origins of them, but they're, you know, um, they're not from England <laughs> and no. they're associated with trade. And there's some fantastic stories in, um, 
in the history of turkeys, I really loved researching this part of the book because it's fan- really it is fantastic. When, uh, well, uh, they, uh, the stories about them kind of these enormous um, turkey farms that cropped up in Britain and yeah. to uh, to <laughs> get them to market, they would there'd be literally hundreds of thousands of turkeys crossing um, southern Britain at this particular time of year and. <laughs> With little, they had to wear little boots to protect their feet because they had to walk for so far. And I just, if you think about this, you know, the, as someone that works in heritage, we're really interested in sort of the sensory experiences of the past. But can you imagine being in these towns yeah. in Britain it, with thousands of turkeys coming gobbling through, all wearing tiny boots? I'm, it, it's fantastic. Was, that was, yeah, yeah I, I'm look. Yeah. I have that, that that is in front of me right now, underlined because that with exclamation points next to it. I mean, it's a fantastic image. Um, so Turkey became, I mean, and to this day, Turkey sort of reigns at the the. I was kind of surprised. I, I hadn't realized how popular Turkey was in England until I lived there, and then I had no idea until I read your book how far back this went. But Turkey is, despite goose being mentioned in um, in Christmas Carol. Uh, well, Turkey is as well. Turkey really does mm. reign supreme at the at the English Christmas table. Mm. Yeah, uh, and that was to... slow. That was slow coming. It wasn't. There was still sort of this emphasis on the other species and goose and and duck to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly throughout well into the Victorian period, but eventually Turkey becomes enshrined. As the... you, you mentioned goose clubs. Could you? Could you? And 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 that. People recognize this. This is like winning a turkey, sort of th- from the Masons or from um, the Rotary or something like that in the in the states. Um, could you explain yeah. what a goose club is? Okay, so there was different ve- ways in which it um, happened, but basically, it was so Christmas had become such an important feast for the British, certainly by the Victorian period. Um, that there was this sense, again, we talked about, you know, all mankind coming together in egalitarianism, but there was this idea that everyone needed to have access to um, a goose and a plum pudding on Christmas Day. And we see that in Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, this idea of the Cratchit family feast, that they're sort of eking every little bit of goose flesh off the bones. Um, but in order to assist um, working classes having um, being able to participate in this feast you get these goose clubs and so you it can happen in different ways some of it was that you sort of pay off a goose in installments over years or you go in with another family and you club together that happened particularly with pork um, to make you buy Hmm. sort of a pig together and pay it off in installments or you could also have sort of benevolent funds where wealthier families could donate and um, I, I, I like to point out this work. is this is the uh, central to the entire plot of the Sherlock Holmes story, The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle, is a goose club. Oh, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, yeah. I I, I wanted to meet. I, 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 it's about the only literary reference that you missed, uh, as far as I can oh, see okay. in the book. But <laughs> but it's the goose club is central to the uh, b- behind the plot. Yeah, it's right. Yeah. Um, so the so we have goose. You point out that. Um, I mean, to be sure, lots of different, I mean, if you're upper class, you ate all sorts of meat. I mean, you ate mm. dizzying quantities of meat and, mm. and no need for sides of vegetables either. You had meat as a side to meat. Um, but yeah. beef, beef doesn't seem to have been as popular. And you, uh, you suggest, you give an interesting reason why that might be the case. 
Um, I don't think it's true to say beef wasn't as popular. It ceased to be as pop. So it was originally... um, Originally popular. Originally very popular and having um, there's great, you know, descriptions of these whole sides of beefs roasting in kind of medieval and Tudor castles. And, and certainly venison was, you know, deer was um, exceptionally popular as a Christmas food. And um, they made these extraordinary pasties out of them that contained a whole yeah. side of, of deer. But um, beef, it was one of the questions I really had and I tried to dig in what happened that made it not ultimately the Christmas food that, reigned supreme and i think mm-hmm. what i came to and i've still got some question marks about this but i think what i came to is that roast beef actually became so critically important to the british sense of identity in the 18th and 19th centuries that it became truly the national dish and that christmas kind of needed its own special um kind of designated element of the meal that wasn't as widely eaten at all other types of years. So it's there's something in just how important roast beef becomes to the British that mm-hmm. I think strips it of its sort of being solely a Christmas food. But, I mean, it's still eaten in um, parts of Britain. It's never the star on the table on Christmas Day. In Ireland, spiced beef is a delicacy. That's quite yeah, a could, beautiful Could you explain that? Because yeah. uh, I, well, I, I definitely want to talk about that and uh, – this is what we associate, I think, with St. Patrick's Day in the States is what we might call corned beef, right? I mean, that's, that's, that is spiced beef. Yeah. So think of spiced beef as a more upmarket version of corned beef. So it's yeah, okay. sort of um, rubbed in like traditionally saltpeter and spices, juniper berries, pepper, uh, various kind of Christmas spices and bay leaves and sugar, and you leave it to – preserve cure hmm. and then you boil it like corned beef so it tastes very like um a beautiful piece of corned beef that is sort of infused with christmas spices so, and sounds it's particularly a, yeah so one of the reasons corned beef is so important in irish food culture and for uh, particularly for irish americans is that um cork became this really um this global center for um meat distribution throughout the empire basically mm-hmm. and co- around that you get this sort of cultural development of these different recipes and things that are really important for the city of cork and then get kind of exported around the world with the diaspora communities mm-hmm. and uh spice beef is particularly associated with cork and if you go mm-hmm. to the english market in the middle of cork i'd ever i'd urge you to see if you can get some spice beef it's truly beautiful Huh. Um, let's talk about seafood. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. seafood had a um, in the pre-Reformation era. Uh, it had a special mm-hmm. role. It still and it still does, of course, in America, but mostly for I would say for Sicilian Americans um, with mm. the Feast of Seven, Seven Fishes and so on. That's speaking as someone who's partly Italian American. That wasn't as important for us because uh, we're from the north. Um, mm. But what I was intrigued to see is how seafood has become important in Australia. And I wanted to, in mm-hmm. our conversation, talk more about the Antipodean Christmas. Uh, because like a lot of kids, uh, when I was growing up, I thought, gosh, how can they have Christmas when it's summer? That makes no sense. 
Um, yeah. So it, it makes they, can't they like change it to the other anyway? Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I was really curious then to read about the ways in which there. Can you talk a little bit about the Antipodean Christmas and how it's altered from the previous? English styles to something different? Yeah, so if you look at, um, I'm not sure how much, you know, listeners will have a background in Australian history, but um, Australia was colonised by the British from 1788 on and it really got in the 19th century. And in, throughout that first century post-colonisation, you have this, you know, very strong attachment to the, you know, quote-unquote motherland and a real sense that people are part of the British Empire. And over the course of the 20th century, that starts to change. And it's a slow process, but one that is still continuing. Um, so as particularly from the sort of post-World War II era on, Australia sort of develops an increasingly... Um, an increasing sense of its own identity, and this is fused by its independence, by its relationship with America, and by this influx of migrants in the post-war era. And part of that is sort of a bit of a coming-of-age story as it starts to step one, you know, a few steps further away from Britain. And at, at the Christmas table, we see this gradual um, desire to really embrace our outdoor high summer Christmas. Mm -hmm. And you see, particularly from, so I might, this is the same era as Paul Hogan's like ad campaign. I'm not sure if you have any memory of that, but the throw <laughs> oh, yes. another shrimp oh, on yes. the barbie. So uh, it's proverbial sort of, for people who never don't even know yeah. who Paul Hogan is. Say, still say that. Yeah. Uh, uh, really, the really strange yeah. thing to Australians is we don't say shrimp. So it was really yeah. but it was part of this. Exactly. Kind of, yeah. 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 <laughs> Very um, <laughs> marketing ourselves as this outdoor, fun-loving summer nation of barbecuers, basically. And so Christmas recognition of Australians that we are in the Southern Hemisphere and that it's summer and that we want to embrace that. And um, part of that is embracing our seafood and our weather and our outdoor lifestyle. And it becomes quite a conscious, it's quite a conscious movement from particularly from the 1970s on. You can trace it in newspapers quite closely as this idea. And now most Australian families I know would have seafood at some point in the Christmas period. Yeah. So we can imagine that first, people were resolutely eating roast beef or probably roast beef and plum pudding mm -hmm. in, indoors, and eventually this transition to picnics and mm. sort of cold ham with pineapples and cherries or what have you, and a plum pudding. And now everyone's standing around Hawaiian shirts uh, having a prawn from the Barbie. Yeah. Although a lot of us kind of fuse them. So my family will do like a um, bar prawns on the barbecue on Christmas Eve. Um, and then we have a more traditional meal on Christmas Day. But it's becoming increasingly diverse as Australia's become increasingly diverse. And But it's this thing that has really become a tradition in its own right. And the sales of seafood from the fish market are astronomical. Yeah. The, the, huh. It opens for... You know, it doesn't close for a few, a couple of days now. 
and huh. um, just shifts tons and tons of prawns. So it's, but that, but that again, that it's it happened earlier than we think. It's not just about seafood, as you brought up that going out for a picnic. There's these stories of coming with Australia's and their plum pudding along mm. with them as they go for this outdoor picnic. So it's this sort of gradual awakening over time that really just gathered momentum in the later 20th century. Well, let's talk about plum pudding. Um, it's uh, part of my family's uh, Christmas celebration or some version of it, although I suspect we're ve- a very small minority now in the United States. But it's um, it's very old, but not in the way people might think. In mm. so, so could you explain um, what sounds like a ghastly thing, uh, plum pottage? Well, it's uh, okay. So plum pottage was a yeah. medieval dish. And it was part of a family of dishes called a pottage, which is literally just a dish cooked in a pot. And it, they think of them as sort of a cereal, meat, and fruit-based kind of mm-hmm. soupy stew. So a pottage had um, meat, commonly beef, um, or various different cuts, and fruit and a cereal that was sort of stewed together. And they were heavily spiced and flavoured. And it sounds um, odd or off-putting to a modern audience to think of a sort of a meat and fruit stew. But actually, if we think about Moroccan food, it's a pretty good mm-hmm. example of what we're talking about. You know, it's this idea of a meat, of meat, fruit and spice is actually preserved in many cultures well, today. Yeah, and it's a very medieval thing. And my sister's actually made yeah. mince, pie, mince pies with venison and they're fantastic. So Yeah, um, yeah, and it's not... Um, because it's become what happened to food in the early modern period in Europe of this separation of sweet and savoury that it's become so naturalised to us that these things are in mm-hmm. opposition to one another. But man, many cuisines around the world have this sweet, savoury spice in sort of, you know, complementing one another and the balance of the flavours is, is quite um mm-hmm globally you know accepted um it's just that our our food changed so much so it starts with these cottages and if we think about dried fruit and spice and we've already talked about meat um, but also sugar as these luxury ingredients that are really special they're exotic they're extremely Mm. expensive in the medieval world and so they're just perfect for to mark a significant occasion and tasting if you go to the market and buy a lot of dried fruit for a Christmas cake, you'll find that it's it's not just expensive in the in the in the early modern world. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. You, you can drive up quite a bill by trying to make a, a good fruit cake. So true, true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they start out as these sort of cottages, and then over time, by the early modern period, certainly by the 17th century, we're already seeing a strong association between plum pottage and Christmas. Um, when it's it becomes something to um, in the mid-17th century when they rail against Christmas. So we already know that by then, so plum pottages were sort of eaten at a lot of important festivals, but by the 17th century, they were already sort of specifically associated with Christmas in people's consciousness. So at, at some point, a, an, an unknown genius created one of the finest um, English contributions to civilization, which is the pudding. Um, yes. And they they took the pottage and somehow... What did they do? I mean, I'm not clear, but they, they turned it in, put some flour in it and put it in a bag and away you go. Yeah. 
so they become stiffer and boiled in this pudding cloth. So everyone will be familiar, I think, with the sort of traditional image of the plum pudding in this calico bag, you know, this mm-hmm. round calico ball. And so they boil it and it becomes this sort of solid, stodgy, boiled yeah. <laughs> um, fruit and well, meat. Except that it's much better than a, a baked cake, as far as I'm concerned, is to have a boiled cake. Um, but is it true that, that uh, you don't mention this, but is it true that the, the, that pudding would be boiled in the same pot as the beef? Um, since everything everything's being boiled, it's the easiest cooking technology. Do things all get yeah, boiled de- together? Definitely at times. And I think like Christmas pudding, or oh, plum pudding, as I knew it then, was still in the 19th century eaten outside of Christmas, um, mm-hmm. but it was also eaten with beef as a they, – they were paired together. So there's these really fascinating stories from colonial Australia of um, one of the early governors in Sydney, Governor Macquarie, in the early 19th century had these amazing feasts for Aboriginal people that where he was sort of trying to draw, the, draw them into the British sphere of influence and they are served plum pudding and, and roast beef on um, <laughs> the 26th or 27th. Yeah. Huh. So not only were um, they boiled together, they were also cooked together, eaten together. Yeah. Okay. Um, so pudding turns out to be have a, a tremendous connection to in British and in, in imperial politics. So uh, you, you make the case that puddings were regarded as sort of a, a, a essential to British well-being in both the world wars. Could you explain that? Mm. So as the empire expanded, um, this was one of the key elements that the British took with them wherever they went as a key marker of Christmas. And so it becomes extremely important for colonial Australians, even though we're in the height of summer, that having this pudding means that it is Christmas and that we are part of the British Empire. And it becomes such an important national dish in that sense that it um, is often used in 18th and 19th century cartoons as an image of the globe and as Mm -hmm. a sort of a representation of British might. Um, People might be familiar with the very famous cartoon of Napoleon and um, Yeah, Yeah. so there's, there's a lot of that sort of rhetoric around it. And then it also feeds into this idea that um, as... In the 20th, in the later 19th and then going into the 20th century, they get this idea of the empire pudding. And this is a, a marketing campaign in the 1920s and 1930s to sort of basically it was triggered by American fruit, industry, vine fruit industry um, starting to compete with Australians. Um, and in response to this, the Australian dried fruit industry sort of lodged this campaign to make British buy empire goods. Mm-hmm. And um, that you, so they design these recipes that the, the royal family support to um, promote the trade in empire goods. So you can make your pudding based on Irish eggs and Australian vine fruit and, you know, so there's this very conscious idea of bringing the empire together in this boiled pudding cloth. <laughs> and so that sort of explains a little bit of the importance of it in geopolitical terms and empire terms and in, you know, quite in terms of actual trading commodities. So going into the 20th century, we have it as this ultimate symbol of the British Empire. And so during the wars, um, having Christmas pudding was really important both for civilians and troops. And it was a way of marking Christmas, of keeping morale high and of, of bringing the empire together. And 
there's some incredible photos from the war years of Christmas puddings being shipped around um, to the front lines and of um, we also get these sort of recipes put out to sort of cope with rationing and sort of mm-hmm. how to use various substitute ingredients and things to make sure that everyone still has their Christmas pudding. Um, how, how has a uh, thing uh, you describe how this has begun to change in Australia, um, just as people don't want to eat a um, roast meat in the height of summer, they don't want to eat a boiled pudding in the height of summer. Mm. Um, so what are, what are, what are the new, what's the new Australian uh, sweet dessert, um, expensive dessert or just sweet dessert okay. for, for Christmas? So the pudding is still pretty dominant. Um, a lot of families will still have their pudding. Um, and certainly mine always have it. Um, <laughs> but it does have its competitors now, or often families will have two desserts, as people are increasingly less, um, like you brought up Christmas cake, there seems to have been a shift in palate for Christmas cake, Christmas pudding, mince pies, fruit cake. Mm-hmm. These are, I don't know, there's been some sort of change in the last 20 years in terms of how preferences but also in terms of the climate as you bring up so pavlova is really a national dish although we compete with the new zealanders on that one it, it's important for both countries and there's like a long running debate over who invented it <laughs> but um, uh, but it pavlova is a particularly iconically australian or i'll say Indian christmas dessert um and but also fruit it's this incredible time of year when the summer fruits come out and very traditional to give each other a box of mangoes um, and the yeah. sort of scent of overripe mangoes and perspiring pine needles is really something that tells every Australian child that Christmas is just around the corner. <laughs> but this... <laughs> and so this I mean, the, the Victorian... Sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, no, this is, uh, for Americans, this is the uh, the box of something from Harry and David, uh, an Oregon-based fruit, um, I don't know what they do, wholesaler, uh, that these get sent around. Uh, but it, I was delighted to see that. So this has been a, a Victorian thing, sending mangoes from Queensland to people, other people in Australia. Yeah, so the Victorians, you know, um, you might be familiar with the idea that children in, you know, Victorian Britain and, and America, for that matter, would have, you know, be given an orange or a piece of citrus fruit in their Christmas stocking yeah. if they were lucky. So there's this idea of fruit. And I remember my grandmother relishing glacé fruits were a big Christmas thing and we don't see as much mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. So fruit is, you know, has been a long um, persistent thread in, in Christmas food um, there in sort of the background, particularly in, in terms of gift giving. But one of the things that was interesting to me, so I talked a bit about how the seafood barbecue is a later 20th century Australian development, but it was really interesting to me. I'd always assumed that the embrace of mangoes and cherries was also a later 20th century thing. But when I sort of started to trace back in food writing and newspapers, I realised that this actually runs back into the 19th century in Australia. And quite early on, we have this idea of Queensland, which is out from the tropics, sending crates of fruit down to their relatives in um, the southern states of, of Australia and they'll, they'll watch the fruit market quite closely and, and see how fruit prices are going. And so this is quite, a, it's again one of these early um, signs that Australia is sort of embracing um, an Antipodean Christmas and climate but in this mm-hmm. very traditional Victorian way of celebrating mm-hmm. Christmas through fruit exchange. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, let's let's move on to alcohol. Um, yeah. Wassailing, uh, the very name goes back to Norse traditions, or Wassail, mm. um, the toasting. Um, what's the significance? I mean, and they're they're basically this is uh, Wassailing is, is is drinking, but it's also hot punch um, mm. of of a multiple kinds. So what's the significance of this to Christian uh, Christmas feasting? So wassailing is really a, um, it can be used to describe the drink, but it's really the practice. Of, yeah. And so there are some different ways in which um, people did it. So the first was that they would just sort of come into the banqueting hall with this bowl of wassail and everyone would cheer um, you'd often have it chanted three times, wassail, wassail, wassail. And it was essentially uh, a wish for good health and the response would be drink hail. So it means drink, be well. Um, again, like we saw with meat, this wish for good things to come in the new year. So that's that was one kind of ritual. The other one that then kind of merges into caroling is going from door to door and you would have people coming around to your door with a bowl of um with uh, wishing good tidings for, for the new year mm -hmm. and you would have to bring them um, some wassail or, um, you know, bad things would happen basically if you didn't <laughs> return hospitality. So this idea of sort of going door to door and that you would be given alcohol or gifts or money in exchange for good wishes. It's but really trick really or treat before trick or treat. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think it, that gets back to this idea that um, sort of running through the history of Christmas, something we haven't talked about as much, is this idea that it's now this domestic occasion in which we sort mm -hmm. of celebrate through a meal in our homes, but that actually in earlier times it was a much more public festival in which people were out and about and they were visiting their neighbours and it was rowdy and it was bawdy and like as you bring up with trick-or-treating, this actually was a lot, a part of the early modern world that we've lost is actually this very mm -hmm. public um, celebration no, it, together. It, it fits into like Feast of Fools celebrations, the uh, bottom rails on top, the up world's turned upside down. Um, all these things have this happened. It's this time of the year where the impossible has happened. Uh, the sun, and if you're a pagan, the sun is actually going to return even though it's so dark. If you're a Christian, obviously something else impossible has happened. It's all part of this story. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, so we have these, you know, people visiting the houses and one of the things I found really interesting was that they were sort of known as wassail wenches or sometimes wassail virgins, these groups of women that would fall around to the house as part of this kind of drinking and good wishing um, ritual with this bowl of wassail. And yeah, there's some really um, funny kind of early commentators that sort of begrudge this and um you know bemoan this group of women with their i think it's described as they make you drink of the slabby stuff which i was quite <laughs> interesting but anyway so that's one other wassail ritual but the one that really interested me was this um that i got really involved in as i was writing the book was this idea that people in different parts of britain had these very specific rituals where they would go yeah. into um, orchards, particularly around in apple country in Britain, but wassail can be made of whatever is the sort of traditional alcohol of the region. It could be mulled ale or um, I'm sure there are traditions in Europe that draw on mulled wine, um, but I'm sort of talking more about Britain here, so we're really looking at ale and, and cider. 
but mm-hmm. they would go into the orchards and they would sing to the trees. And again, it's this idea of sort of a form of um, ritualized sort of good wishes. So they would toast to the trees and sing with them. And there were various things they do. Sometimes they would light fires in the orchards or beat the trees or stay with them. And there's ideas about um, spirits that lived in the oldest tree that you would toast. And these quite beautiful um carols and songs that they would sing to these trees and mm-hmm. that was quite really fascinating to me and a lot of huh. that survived in apple country in britain right into the 19th century um well that makes that makes sense yeah. the apple tree carol then which i've never understood the christ, uh, christ the yeah, apple tree yeah 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 exactly. uh, which is a, be- yeah. a beautiful sort of hymn but also I, I could never figure out the the apple tree connection there so that that has made sense of that um, and of course, also that leads to then um, lamb's wool, uh, which is roasted apples in like a beer punch, which I have to make in an, in a couple of weeks because that sounds really good. Yeah, have you? You've never had this before. Have no, you, I've never. I presume, ha- ha- I have you tried it? Have you tried it? Yeah, I have. I don't know that we had a massive success with it. We're gonna have to try it again. But one of the things I really got into, I'm afraid to say, this Christmas in July, we sometimes find <laughs> Australia cold, and the great range of hot alcohols um i think this is something we've really lost certainly in australia but there was this you know array of various mulled drinks really um good and need a bit of a rest and you were you were you've experimented with all of them so that's yeah yeah we perfect mulled cider we haven't had the the ale was it it was different i don't know if it's one of those things that was an acquired taste and you had to be there at the time or if, um, <laughs> if we, we had the wrong mix, but we're going to be experimenting with it. This yeah. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it myself. Um, it's, it's interesting uh, of all the things that we drink. I mean, my family always drank malt wine. And when I became a snotty teenager, mm-hmm. I was like, why are we doing this English thing when we're like Italian Americans? That's disgusting. That's mm-hmm. so we're such, but when I th- now we read about, it, I thought about it. Malt wine is the most Mediterranean thing in the entire christmas yeah. repertoire it's the and it might be the mulled wine might be the oldest thing in the christmas repertoire um people have been mulling wine since they had wine yeah exactly and i think it's quite um interesting as well it gets back to this some early versions where there's this idea of wine and fruit and sugar as medicinal so you have mm-hmm. um it's connected to hippocrats and these various kind of ideas of mulling alcohol as sort of a form of of medicine as well but then takes on its own life mm-hmm. and one of the things again i was quite interested in is that the victorians had this there wasn't just mulled wine there were this sort of family of wines the ecclesiasts so there'd be smoky yes, bishop yes. is the one that they talk about in um christmas carol which is like um you basically take oranges and you roast them and you caramelize them and then you mull the wine with them it's it's really good worth sounds fantastic and, oh. and then there are and i'll get my ecclesiasts confused but there are various ones there's one on champagne I think it's Pope mm-hmm. or something and then there's like the, the church house is something like ale I, i've got there's a whole list of different mild alcohols basically and they all have their sort of they all have their special title yeah 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 basically yeah that's fantastic um so this it, it's interesting because i it, I, I presume people used to serve punch. Well, I know people used to serve punch a lot more often, but the only mm. time that people really serve punch, uh, if they do at all, is probably around Christmas. I mean, I mean, mm. and what I mean is they serve something from a large bowl, 
And as mm-hmm. I was thinking about sort of what your your arguments were in this book, it's interesting given the long story of Christmas as of hospitality and of mm-hmm. communal and leveling. This is the last time that we all drink from the same bowl. Uh, used to be a yeah. very that was the only way to drink a hundred years ago or two hundred mm. one hundred and fifty years ago before the cocktail, um, and now mm. it's been relegated to this one season. Um, so we could get really you know communal versus individualistic about this. Um, yeah, I'm know. sure you might know the body of theory about this, but it is quite interesting to me, particularly as a sort of reforming archaeologist. Um, yeah. This idea of the sort of shift from the medieval world that was communal, and so you sat on benches and you ate off shed plates hands and you drank often out of one you know big mug together yep and then you get this shift into this um more individualistic world and there was a very famous historical archaeologist Jane Seats um in America who wrote this book in small things forgotten um mm-hmm. highly recommend mm-hmm. it if you have wonderful it. book um yeah so and he talks a lot about how you we see this shift towards individualism. And so I think, again, with Christmas and nostalgia, we see this return to this idea of this earlier medieval communal understanding of the world. And it's this, um, that's been retained in a way that it hasn't in our food culture more broadly. That kind of brings it, we're going way over time. And I want you to get back to what you have to do. No, no, it's not your fault. <laughs> I can keep on going. I want to. We haven't even talked about eggnog, so we'll have to leave that for people to read the book and and really do try it and don't get out of a carton. Make it for yourself. Uh, don't worry about the eggs. They can't survive in the presence of. I forget whose recipe you had. It was a famous. Was it uh, Washington George Washington's recipe? Um, yes. Yeah. His famous it, it, recipe for eggnog. It's pretty booze yes, heavy. It, yeah. it was, it's fantastic. It's got rum, brandy, uh, rye. It's got, yes, brandy, rye whiskey, Jamaica rum, and sherry. Uh, salmonella can't survive uh, against such a combination. No, so. no. It's, uh, but eggnog is, it was a bit of a discovery for me writing this because it's not a tradition we have strongly in Australia. And I wholly... Um, I've embraced it completely. Yeah. It's, uh, I, it's fantastic. I, I, it should be part of I mean, it's interesting because uh, my family used to drink it at Easter. And mm. in the in the South, it's considered a, it's considered more of a, also a, it was a summer drink. Mm. Uh, it was cold and refreshing. It was it, it perked you up. So, um, yeah. you know, you can, you can try it. I think it would, it would work for an Australian Christmas as a, as a new I think, tradition. Yeah, it, yeah, it's fantastic. And um, really, um, I one of those elements of the American Christmas that has sort of penetrated out, um, yeah, along with along with a lot of other customs, increasingly. So. Yeah, well, we've even talked about cookies, which is uh, distinctively American because um, it's Dutch. Um, but let's let's tie the let's tie this in a, this package in a, in a nice bow now. Um, that see that was a that was a seasonal reference. Um, what would be your uh, sort of you you make three final points about the Christmas celebration? So I, I like I'd like to sort of end with that and some some other meditations on this. So what are do you see as the continuing cultural sort of through lines to to the Christmas feast? I think um, one of the really important things is that Christmas. Um, really matters to people and that is why it's survived and certain hmm. elements of it have um, been maintained other things have changed but it 
survives because there are very few times in the year where we stop and come together and where we give ourselves over to ritual and magic in Hmm. particularly in the Western world. And that is clearly something that people have a deep-seated need for. They need to celebrate. They need magic. They need um, festivals. So I think that we've seen that throughout history and that that is what really um, before Christianity, through Christianity, and now with whatever the next chapter of history holds, um, it will be something that we really need to hold on to. I think, though, within that as well is that Christmas excess is really has always been at the heart of the festival and that we need these times where we really let off steam. I think <laughs> in there's an element where that has been lost in the 21st century because we have abundance a lot of the time and I think that in the medieval world with this sort of rhythm of fasting and feasting, it made a lot more sense. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that idea of a feast, of coming together and of celebrating and of having an abundance of particularly of meat, alcohol and sugar, it really is a significant thing. But throughout that, there's always been people that are really ang- anxious about the excess. And I know certainly in Australia, I presume in, in the States as well, you have a lot of anxiety about um consumerism and about how much Mm -hmm. the festival has sort of you know devolved into this spending frenzy Mm -hmm. um and i think that's sort of now gone into the modern language of sustainability and concerns around that particularly around things like meat and and consumption um and that Mm -hmm. is understandable but that that's actually sort of for me really a 21st century of iteration of attention that is really always yeah it's it's attention it seems to be a theological tension going up to the back to the beginning, actually. Um, but it is it's this my... tension about this sort of religious versus secular excess versus um, mm-hmm. spiritual dimension has really always been there at Christmas, and that is a long-standing thing that goes back yeah. to the medieval period, at least. I, I, and I, and I, thinking about your book, I think it's accentuated when there is no fasting. Um, of course, Advent mm. used used to be known as Little Lent. Um, uh, it takes a very, I, I think, a very uh, devout Eastern Orthodox might still celebrate that. I, I don't think mm. that even many devout Catholics celebrate Advent as Little Lent. The, the gravitational pull of the season is just too strong. Um, yeah. But it, if you're if you're celebrating Advent as Little Lent, then it all makes sense. <laughs> um, That's then, it. The, yeah. the, then the feasting, then you can let yourself go. I mean, it's, you know, we don't fa- fast, we diet. Um, so the, so the, the excess of Christmas is even then more jarring than it is in a fasting culture, oddly enough. Yeah, I know. I know it's probably time um, to wrap up, but I think I've been reflecting on this lately with, I'm sure Michael Mosley and the 5-2 diet is big in the States as well. Um, yeah, But right, this yeah. kind of rise of intermittent fasting it is a real thing. And I think um, I'm quite interested in this idea of fasting and feasting, given my background in food history. But I think one of the sad things is that we've really stripped away a lot of the sort of broader meaning from these things and that to fasting isn't just about um it it can't be done in isolation from feasting basically the two work with each other Mm -hmm. to create sort of a balance for the world so that you have these times where you are um moderate at a time when you celebrate and i think that that is something that's really some lesson in the past there that we could really 
draw from. Well, my guest today has been Madeline Shanahan. She is author of Christmas Food and Feasting. It's available from Roman Littlefield, and uh, you should buy it. Uh, even though the time you might hear this on Christmas or afterwards, you can still give it as a gift for Twelfth Night or something like that. Um, Madeline, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 